if there's one thing we're doing here, it's um, it's just getting to know each other. Yeah, I think the more we do that we're not going to include, mm-hmm. the shorter the episodes are. Until at some point, yeah. the episodes will be zero minutes. It's just a haiku. Journos, a stream of consciousness news podcast with Stephen Jackson and Brandon R. Reynolds. If there's one thing that you can say about the war in Ukraine, it's that it has definitely been covered. Mm-hmm. And like many disasters or conflicts or big events in the world, you know, any little bit is like drinking from a fire hose. And so you maybe feel like you've got a sense of completeness just with a little bit. So drinking out of this fire hose of information can be overwhelming and can make you shut down. And we know all of that. It also leaves you sort of wondering, what can I do? Well, can I donate to this cause? Uh, you know, should I pick up arms and go overseas? Or should I just turn the TV off and go hide under my bed until a new era emerges? Mm, Yeah. And to that point, today we actually want to talk about um, acts of resistance that we're seeing uh, across the world. You may have seen this one story that came out around the the 14th of March, 14th, 15th of March. It's where on a state-owned Russian media channel, TV channel one, a woman rushed in behind this anchor and held up this handwritten sign that said, no war, don't believe propaganda, they're lying to you here. So this woman's name is Marina Ofsyanakova. She was an editor at Channel One. Uh, and she, in this incredible act of bravery, went on live TV. They they didn't shut the feed down. And a lot of people saw it, right? And people in Russia saw it. And then also people, obviously, around the world saw it. And she kind of disappeared for a little bit. People were getting worried. And then she showed up in court um, the following day. And she actually refused to retract her statement against the war. And she was then released from detention and only fined about $280 by this court, right? And she was released. But uh, she still could face charges under this new Russian law uh, that um, prohibits any kind of criticism of the military. And that actually could land her up to 15 years in prison. That is unbelievable, just guts. Come on, crazy. To go on national TV, there's no denying it. This is not cloak and dagger. This is not behind the scenes. This is, it reminds me of Tank Man, you know, from Tiananmen Square. Oh, okay. The man who stood in front of the tanks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, definitely. That idea that someone is standing up against a threat. Mm-hmm. And, and without any ability for anyone to swoop in and help. Like, it is all or nothing yeah. putting it all out there. Yeah. I mean, that's scary to think about what that prison sentence would mean. But, I mean, the impact is there. I mean, I think more people around the world as a result of that became more tuned in to this full-fledged propaganda, misinformation, more that's occurring in Russia. Because, I mean, that this Russia shit, I mean, they turned this place into a hermit kingdom in like a week. It's, it's just a total closed-circuit scenario in there. When you told me that you wanted to talk about resistance today, this was one act of resistance that was just uh, particularly powerful uh, for me. Yeah, I agree. And it's very classical. It's very, again, standing up against the totality of an empire's power and saying, no, I'm not going to put up with it. It's another form of resistance that, you know, will spread like wildfire in terms of, you know, its shareability. So that one tiny act of resistance, which 
I mean, again, she's risking life and limb to do is now, you know, millions and millions and millions of people have seen that. And and I think that that is a very powerful thing. And on the other side of that, those of us who are outside of what I guess we'll call the Iron Curtain again, um, the, the electronic curtain or whatever, mm-hmm. um, are thinking... How do we help? What do we do? And so you see these interesting manifestations. Uh, and the one that resonated really strongly and also had a strange echo to the last couple of years was the story of this Ukrainian microbrewery mm-hmm. called Pravda, which is in Lviv, which is close to the Polish border on the western side of Ukraine. They'd been cranking out brews. They'd been popular in Europe. The day of the invasion, February 25th, they shut down the beer-making works and they start up a whole new product, which is Molotov cocktails. Wow. Yeah. They had the product. They had the materials. They'd been winning awards for their beers all over Europe. So they shifted over to going from, who knows, IPAs or whatever to, according to The Economist, a concoction made from six parts machine oil, three parts petrol, four parts expanded polystyrene dissolved in a solvent called Thinner 646, and a sprinkling of powdered aluminum. Yeah, I mean, that would be like if Lagunitas just started churning out mini napalm bombs, you know, to throw at invaders who were trying to take over San Francisco. I think that part of that story, too, really brings things home, too. Perhaps it was so powerful because it's so relatable, right? Suddenly the function of something like that that in the West we're all so uh, familiar with then turns into this... Uh, supplier of arms, you know, that resonates. Also, it it reminds us of the time during the pandemic when all those distilleries, you know, changed their production lines to start producing uh, hand sanitizer. Microbrews, it's a big thing now. To go from that into making weapons of war, it's sort of an inversion of the swords into plowshares, you know. It's plowshares back into swords, yeah. but it's, you know, it's this very... This product of a very comfortable culture mm-hmm. at this one point in time that is yeah. now like, yeah, we're going to make a product that average citizens are going to take and throw at tanks yep. for invaders. Crazy. I think it's about the idea of repurposing comfortable symbols. You see these elements of society that kind of mean one thing, totally get transformed. You see this with like missiles destroying familiar places in cities and sort of laying waste to them. And so that ch- that changes what that is. You also see things transform to have these new uses in the face of this like chaos that is war. And the microbrew to Molotov cocktail is such um, kind of a precise symbol of that transformation that occurs in these awful and chaotic times. It, yeah. it jars us out of the sense that, again, going back to this idea from the post-Soviet period, Francis Fukuyama said, is the end of history. The idea that like all of this is resolved and liberal democracy has won. The only direction we can go into is settling into peace and prosperity, everyone becoming democracies. And once you set up a microbrewery, it's going to be a microbrewery forever. It's just going to be cranking out IPAs. Yeah. That's what it makes. You're never going to have to go back to a state of war. So don't mm. worry about that. That idea, it really hangs on to the Western imagination because we are so comfortable, right? Yeah. So those stories become very popular in the media. Another one that I saw in Vice and a few other places was about a store in Chicago called Citizen Brick that's known for making specialized Lego toys, right? The little mini figs for different stuff, for stuff that Lego doesn't want to touch with a 10-foot pole, like a mini fig of Carrie from the movie Carrie. Like what? Does she have, like, just covered in blood? 
I assume so, yeah. yeah. Little tiny pig bloods that Got fall it. on her. Uh, squid game player, green beret with a knife, um, and then other things like cigarettes and condoms. Well, mm. Stephen, okay. Citizen Brick is now offering, again, tiny little toy Lego Molotov cocktails yeah. and a minifig of President Volodymyr Zelensky, complete with scruff and stern face. Yeah. The Molotov cocktail retails for $10, and the president's minifig retails for 100 And this is all designed as a fundraiser for an organization called Direct Relief, which is a humanitarian charity. So far, wow. Citizen Brick has raised $16,500 through wow. these sales. So, you know, again, it's this, it's this idea that, like, what can we do? Yeah. How do we support a thing? But also, weirdly, how do we play into these memes? Mm. How do we play into a story of resistance that's also sort of fun, yeah. cute, interesting, yeah. and weird? You think about World War II and what it meant to support the war in the United States. And it was like buying war bonds and yeah. little stamps and putting the stamps in a book and posters on walls. You think about it being very earnest, very serious. And now that same sort of stuff is happening, but it's run through this filter of irony and playfulness. Yeah. And that's kind of bizarre and it feels extremely modern. Yeah. I mean, I think the the idea of a fundraiser via these like cheeky little, you know, Lego toys is, I mean, first of all, it's great. Anybody who's raising money for this hats off to them. Right. But it is interesting that in order to meet people where they're at, to a certain extent, you do have to play into this thing you're talking about, right? Like, mm -hmm. so that is the, this idea of creating the Lego toys to raise money. It's like that's attracting a certain type of clientele who may have not been drawn immediately to donate money. And I think that and back to the Molotov cocktail story, you know, that popular media story probably peaked like a certain cross-section of society's interest more than a typical headline because it's like meeting somebody where they're at psychologically. For sure. And there's a kind of cynical read on it, which is just giving money to some organization. All you know is that there's this transaction that'll show up on your credit card and you hope they're going to do something good with it. Mm -hmm. But if you get in the mail a tiny little toy Molotov cocktail as a icon of that participation, yeah. that's rewarding in a certain way. And also kind of comforting. Like you can add that to your collection of specialized Lego figurines sure. and be like, society is still working. Like these toys yeah. are still being made and I can add this. And in some way I can like fold the narrative of Ukraine into this kind of comfortable sense of, yeah. you know, here's all these other things playing out throughout time. Here's the one from the new Batman movie or, you know, or whatever other thing. Yeah. Another story that you had shared with me was this IT Warriors of Ukraine thing. It's like kind of a grassroots group that, you know, got all these hackers and hacktivists together in Ukraine to build this sort of cell of cyber warriors to go and like mesh stuff up in Russia, right? Yeah. If you think about the physical front, mm -hmm. average Ukrainian citizens taking up arms yeah. and Molotov cocktails from Pravda and hurling them at Russian invaders. Those are all frontliners. Again, very traditional war, very familiar symbols of World War II. Yeah. But then you also have this other front, which is, of course, the information front. And so there have to be volunteer warriors for that, too. And so there's this whole IT contingent yeah. of something like 300,000 volunteers that got together on Telegram, which is a chat app. 
and are assigning themselves tasks to go interfere with various aspects of the Russian information infrastructure to throw monkey wrenches into all of these different parts of the kind of Russian yeah. IT apparatus. And it's pretty wild. Yeah, definitely. We're probably going to see or have already seen, we just don't know about it, the pinnacle of cyber warfare at play here. So the idea that this group of resistors in Ukraine joining this cyber warfare front in this grassroots way is, again, this super unique to this situation thing. This has never really happened before. I, I always watch like late night and I see stuff on social media and it's weird. Like Laura and I sometimes feel like some of the treatment of this whole thing, it gets into this uncomfortable territory for me because I believe that like comedy can be very much used so that you can deliver a certain message and it starts conversations and it builds awareness. But there's just a great unknown here, which is what would you do in this circumstance? And you don't know and you can't know. Yeah. None of us can know. We have all of this information that's coming at us at all times and you can be emotionally stirred by it or intellectually stimulated. And you can be fooled into thinking, I know how I would react in that. I saw a video of this person getting out of the way as this bomb fell or this person grabbing this kid and dragging them into a shelter or this person standing there and being annihilated or whatever it is. And you can fool yourself into thinking, I know exactly how I'd react. Yeah. And of course, you just don't. There's yeah. such an intense, deep combination of wiring and psychological orientation and how you were raised and the things that make you nervous or don't and beliefs and values and all that stuff roll together and then tucked away somewhere yeah. in a chest somewhere in the back of your mind. And it gets cracked open at this moment when you need it to or when it's forced into use. And yeah. until then, you have no idea what's going to come out of that box. Exactly. Yeah. And you'll and be surprised by it, yeah. probably, as I think we all would. Totally. And in the meantime, we all sort of do our thing and wrestle with the fact that at the end of the day, we go to bed and we're very comfortable knowing that we've read an article about the Ukrainian Molotov cocktail brewery or we ordered a mini fig with Zelensky's face on it or whatever it is. Yeah, I think it just reminds us all to like, as we talk about this war with our friends or at work or, you know, online or whatever, it's just to have empathy at every turn. I want to make sure that anybody else is also just coming to this from a place of empathy. I think it's just so important. And I think conversely to this deep feeling of empathy that I have for people affected by this war. I have this sort of deep sense of schadenfreude for like all of these Russian billionaires and oligarchs getting their property messed with too. It's definitely a place where you can have what seems like uncomplicated feelings about the outcome because yeah. you've heard nothing but bad things about oligarchs right? Mm -hmm. Oligarchs are the people who, as the Soviet Union came apart, swept in and took over these industries, privatized these industries that had been state holdings, whether it was aluminum or mining or whatever it is, and then made these fortunes illicitly. And then just poured all that into the yacht industry and the fancy villa industry mm -hmm. and made money all over the place. And then there's the further uncomfortable fact that a lot of them are, are living comfortably with investments in the United States mm. and in the Western world that's now like, but hang on a minute. So we're all standing around yeah. going, oh, there's all these oligarchs who are cozy with Putin. And so you're seeing countries 
rolling out these sanctions against something like, I think, 50 different oligarchs. Yeah. And all of their stuff, all of their cool stuff, all of their yeah. toys, which again are like $280 million yachts. Yeah. It makes you wonder also, like, sure, like, so, you know, having assets locked up in like super yachts, one thing, but also like having your assets locked up in Western banks. Do, do these people not know that money is just zeros and ones? What are you thinking? Like, from their perspective, having all this money floating around in the West, because it could just get sanctioned immediately. Well, this is what I think is so interesting and strange about the way we're all interconnected, right? On the one hand, everybody can see the story about the Ukrainian brewery or the Legos or whatever. Um, but also this reminder that we are all so interconnected now. There's no mm -hmm. real isolation. I mean, the story on the other side of it is when the Russian banks suddenly got sanctioned and shut out of the economic system. All of those Russians who had these fancy iPhones suddenly couldn't make payments on their iPhones yeah. because the banks had been shut down. So they were trying to buy a coffee or whatever. Couldn't do it. Yeah. That is, again, something that really resonates with a Western audience. Like, you yeah. know your society's in trouble when you can't get your iPhone to pay for coffee. Yeah. That's a latte, Stephen. What defines us here in the West, if not a latte and the ability to pay it, you know, with your handheld computer? So there is what I will call an orgy of seizures of fancy ass property around the world. Yeah. I know. I've got a couple of my favorites. Mm -hmm. I wonder, Stephen, do you have yeah. any favorite that jumps out at you? Yeah, I, I do. Uh, there's this activist named Pierre Hafner. He's a former businessman. Uh, he's been detained for breaking into a French villa in Biarritz uh, that apparently belongs to Vladimir Putin's daughter. This is a huge villa, eight bedrooms, three bathrooms. Uh, this guy, Pierre Hoffner, broke into this property. He changed the locks and then invited in refugees from Ukraine. There's a lot of interesting things about this story, uh, not the least of which is that it belongs to Vladimir Putin's daughter. And that's something that's not necessarily public knowledge. Uh, Putin is famously secretive about his family life, specifically the existence of his daughters. But this particular daughter, uh, her name being uh, Catherine Tikonova, um, is is unique uh, because she's currently spearheading what the week the newspaper in the UK calls a major new Russian artificial intelligence initiative that's connected to the Moscow State University. Uh, and she spoke at the St. Petersburg World Economic Forum back in June, had this whole big thing at the forum, and it was never acknowledged that she was, in fact, President Vladimir Putin's daughter. Right. But the story gets a little weirder, too, because Katerina, I guess I said Catherine earlier, but other other publications, they go with the Russian name Katerina. Uh, what do you think, Brandon, she likes to do in her free time? Mm, collect pugs. So close. She is an accomplished acrobatic rock and roll dancer. Is Russia from Russia, Dmitry Alexey Katerina Tikonova. Accomplished acrobatic rock and roll dancer. Yeah, that's. That was going to be the next guest, right? Hard yeah. second answer. Definitely. So, um, and I don't want to like kind of just spread random rumors because wouldn't that be sort of antithetical to what we're trying to do? But it has been speculated that she could be someone who's kind of this rising star in Russian politics, if you could call it politics, to, you know, maybe be, uh, I don't know, a figure of note. 
uh, in the future if you think about all of the stuff she's doing um, in tech and in finance, etc. And in rock and roll dance. And in rock and roll acrobatic dancing. So, um, yeah, hats off to Pierre Hafner. Let's get into this billionaire's villa and let's let refugees in. Um, and it's weird. Like, what, what was their end game there? I don't know. They had to know they were going to get caught. I think it, as an act of protest, it exposes the hypocrisy of mm-hmm. the French government. Yeah, because it's like the French government was letting them have this villa. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. yeah the activists occupy this house and uh-huh. then it is forced to be revealed in the media that, oh, yeah, this is. it's not like if you think about how hard it was to get at Donald Trump's financials, right? Like so much stuff was buried and hidden yeah. and whatever. As soon as this guy walks through the front door of this place, or the same story in London where activists occupied the mansion of a guy named Oleg Deripaska, another mm-hmm. giant oligarch, one of the richest men in the world at one point, and also Putin's buddy, same story there. But the idea is these governments knew about it. Not only that, everybody else knew about it, and yeah. they were just allowing it to happen. The activists come through, and now we have to have the conversation about how everybody knew it. Nobody yeah. had to do any deep dives to like figure it out. It was like... Yeah. Oh, who lives next door to you in that nice place? Oh, that's Putin's daughter. And did you hear that she's an acrobatic rock and roll dancer? Yeah. Scandalous. I mean, that's scandalous. That is that is that's very... Scandalous Get a job. Scandalous. Of course, the stories that we've all been seeing over the past few weeks are all of these examples of the mega yachts getting seized, right? And that is fun to watch. Um and of course, the, there's a strategy here too. You know, they're trying to put the screws to these oligarchs, right? They're trying to mess with their stuff so that perhaps they would then appeal to Vladimir Putin, right? It's like, it's it's not just like causing chaos or you know like making sure that we're emptying these rich people's bank accounts for the sake of doing so. The the end game is that these people become so uncomfortable that they then try to sway their buddy Putin. It's strategic. For sure. And also a little bit like these governments got to get their house in order and recognize that you're in bed with these freaks. For sure. So speaking of strange bedfellows, you have these anarchist activists who are claiming these houses and offering them to the people of Ukraine, come Mm -hmm. and crash on one of a million couches in this eight-bedroom house. And then you also have Republican law folk in no less than the state of Texas who are encouraging this behavior in a way. So you have anarchists on one side and hardcore GOP on the other. Both of them, in a way, in agreement that confiscating Russian property sounds like a great idea. I I knew that at some point the the Texas Republican Party was going to get involved in this story. I didn't know how it was going to happen. But I knew it was coming. So uh, enlighten me, please. Sure. A few days after the invasion begins in the state of Texas, a representative by the name of Lance Gooden, who is a guy from Dallas, introduces this bill in which he asks for President Biden to grant something called letters of mark and reprisal. Mark is M-A-R-Q-U-E okay. in the classic sense. Mm-hmm. And what that essentially does is you can apply for a letter of mark from the government. And if you're granted it, it means that you, a private citizen, can go and seize property yeah. like yachts or houses or whatever. And it was essentially born out of this frustration of like, look at all these sick-ass yachts. We should be able to claim these things. Yeah. So Gooden sends this bill up the way. 
hopefully getting a positive response and essentially creating, Stephen, what we like to call privateers. Yeah. I mean, this is like old school pirate stuff, you know? I mean, that's another interesting thing because we've heard about pirates and privateers. When you think about it, you think about these like swashbuckling fellows. Um, and it it kind of makes sense what that whole business was all about, right? Because there's this surprisingly modern day application of this, right? Like, I don't think anybody saw the it, emergence of domestic pirates, you know, uh, attacking Russian oligarchs when this thing first started popping off. But yet again, here we are. That's right. They didn't even have yachts back when the letters of Mark were introduced way back in the 13th century. That was at a time when there was no such thing as private navies. They had a schooner. Schooner? Schooner? Schooners. Schooner? Schooner, yeah. They had a Cuddy Sark. That's just a scotch, right? You're naming scotches against you. The Chivas Regal. The Chivas Regal. There it is. Uh, Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting piece of business. I don't know. Um, It also is probably just, you know, kind of smoke and mirrors. I don't think that this is like in any way going to be productive in like a meaningful way. Um, and, And what this could mean is that like people in America taking up arms to go start like boarding alleged super yachts sounds like shit could get like real messy really quickly. Um, But it's an interesting counterpoint to these other acts of what one could call passive resistance or support. This is maybe like the other end of the spectrum of buying a Lego in like, you know, Chicago. Support of... Yeah. And then this is like, no, we live in Corpus Christi and we're going to get these AK-47s and we're going to take over these freaking yachts. Yeah. Yeah. But let me ask you something, Stephen. Please. Wouldn't you love to see that show? Which one? The show that would premiere on Netflix called, you know, Privateers, colon, Russian oligarchs. And then the next season would be North Korean government or whatever it is. Um, Yeah. You have private citizens. We've certainly got plenty of them with guns and a few of them with boats. And they go and they claim these things. Assuming, Stephen, assuming that this bill passes... Uh, And then that President Joe Biden says, sure, well, let's make this a law. And then he is authorized to issue letters of mark and reprisal for yachts or anything, planes, houses, whatever the Department of Justice. It just seems like a slippery slope. And I think one thing that's interesting about the fact that this was even possible at all is that it's a law that never got repealed. Right. It's a law that hadn't been, I guess, like conjured up since the War of 1812 or something. And it's just something that like stayed on the books so that like this guy even was able to bring it to the floor, which I find to be interesting. It's ensconced all the way back in Article One of the United States Constitution, Stephen. So, yeah, it's been with us for a while. And it's one of those things where, yeah, its utility seems like it's somewhat on the wane. I mean, again, it came around back before kingdoms had navies, so they would hire essentially private ships to go and seize property and then bring it back to this government, the government would reward these privateers with loot or a chunk of the property, whatever they had on the ship that they'd seized. So it was private navies, essentially, not to be confused with pirates who were the independent version of those. These are privateers, they're state-sanctioned. Sounds like a recipe for disaster. I mean, in theory, yes, that is, is tricky. But again, Stephen... You know, when you start to see these stories rolling in of countries Mm -hmm. seizing the yachts, as in the case of like a half dozen yachts owned by oligarchs that have been seized in Europe so far, 
So you mentioned Alisher Yuzmanov. Today or yesterday it was his yacht the Germans have taken in. We also saw that today with Igor Sechin, who is one of President Putin's closest allies ever, worked with him in St. Petersburg, followed him to the Kremlin. In Russian state TV and media and culture, he is literally known as Darth Vader. His yacht was taken in by the French today. So you and can you start to hear the, the kind of stuff that came out of him. You sort of, you, your mouth starts to water. Wow. So you think, I mean... Get some sticks, get some buddies, and go take a boat like that? No problem. Okay. Get some sticks? Sorry, sticks? Yeah, sticks or whatever. I don't know. I'm just saying it might not take much. Because these oligarchs are off somewhere else. There's probably nobody guarding it. You've clearly never managed or led a siege. No, admittedly, I have. Okay. You need more than sticks, my man. Stones? (laughs) I'm not going to finish that. All right, sir. Okay. (laughs) The Norwegians, uh, you think of them as being certainly a very pleasant people, Mm -hmm. a very well-mannered people. Yeah. So their approach to the Russian yacht problem was slightly more passive, but in some ways more sophisticated. There was Russian oligarch, there was a super yacht, Mm -hmm. and it was stuck in a port because local oil suppliers would just not refuse it because they knew the owner was tied to Putin. Oh. This was a 223-foot yacht called Ragnar, and the dude who owns it was a former KGB agent who made a ton of money in nickel mining. Oh, yeah. So an oil supplier named Sven Holmland said, quote, why should we help them? They can row home or use a sail. So Love that. there you go. Yep. But think about this before you poo-poo my idea of taking sticks or whatever. Go ahead. And my letter of mark and reprisal and sure. snatching this boat. I yeah. want you to listen to this sweet-ass data on the Ragnar. Okay. Hit me. It hails itself as, quote, a super yacht like no other. Uh-huh. It's first of all got an icebreaker hull so it can go Good all God. over the place. Wow. Wherever, wherever there's ice. All right. You got yourself a helideck, yeah. a pool, wow. a gym. Okay. You got hella skiing equipment. Jesus. Some sea doos. How many? Just like one sea doo? See, <laughs> dude, Stephen, what kind of oligarch are you going to be with this kind of limited mindset? No, four sea dudes. Oh, okay, got it. Four sea dudes. Got it. Yeah, a number of sea bobs, six of them. I don't even know what a sea bob is. Go on. And then a multi-purpose island and a giant slide. <sighs> I don't yeah. know how they. I don't know if they tow the island around with them yeah. or if that's it's too much else. freaking money. Screw these guys. Hearing about all of this stuff, you know, the. Assets getting reclaimed, people putting the screws to these powerful oligarchs, folks all over the world resisting in different ways, people supporting that resistance in different ways. I, you know, I think it does provide some degree of hope um, for the future of humanity. You know, what I mean, I think seeing this thing go down the way it has and seeing like sort of this cross the aisle in some cases and definitely like unilateral agreement that this is not the right thing to do on Russia's part. You know, this is that that part is somewhat inspiring and encouraging. And I think if you look at the spectrum of responses we've seen from the kind of individual small company in Chicago up to states themselves like France or Spain seizing these boats. Yeah. You have this range of responses to this problem. And to me, there's a little bit of inspiration on the one hand and concern on the other and that idea of balancing the individual versus the state and how these different forces are exerting themselves and in the meantime also find these ways to resist and to support acts of resistance um, through individuals and kind of recognize 
why that stuff's important and yeah. inspiring. Like people, people care. They genuinely care. They do want to do something. It's yeah. not like we've turned our backs on this. And there's a lot of cynicism that you can build up from coverage of this and say, oh, you know, it's it's all for naught. But mm-hmm. but I think there's there's a lot that you can see in this that that is inspiring and at the same time requires further vigilance and further conversation yeah. and discussion. And I think that's pretty great. Yeah. As in many cases, I I do agree with you on those many points you just made. I would, however, like you to really sit down and think about the privateer thing. Privateer yeah, because thing, yeah. think about it. We have a sick-ass yacht. Uh-huh. We could totally do not pirate radio, yeah. but privateer radio. We get privateer a letter from radio. We could broadcast right. journals from our mini sea dues. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be great. Right. Why not? I'll think about it. I'll think about it. Okay. okay. Let's put a pin in that. I'm Steven Jackson. I'm Brandon R. Reynolds, future privateer. Yep. With my good buddy Steven. Yay. <laughs> this has been Journos. See you next time. Journos is produced by Heather Eagle Ears Wilson. <laughs>